This is the Author Archive podcast. This episode is with Marcus Chown, who is a wonderful science communicator, and he has a new book, The One Thing You Need to Know. Welcome, Marcus. It does seem there's an awful lot more than one thing in this book. So what was on your mind when you named it such? Right. Well, I got asked to give a talk to a law firm in Cheltenham. Um, it was on quantum computers, incredibly. And uh, they, they, they just before they said, well, wait a minute, Marcus, no one's going to know anything about science, you know. And I thought, well, what's the one thing I have to tell them about quantum computers from which everything else follows, you know. Uh, and then I can tell you what that is a bit, bit later. But and after that, I thought, well, why don't I, why don't I do that for other topics? You know, why don't I do that for quantum theory, relativity, the Big Bang, plate tectonics? And you're completely right. You can't really do it for everything. You know, I mean, if you're trying to, what if, we don't understand the brain. So there isn't one thing from which everything follows. But but there is actually one thing from which special relativity follows. And that is? You can't catch up a light beam. You know, which is something that Einstein realized when he was 16, you know, because he was aware of James Clark Maxwell, who, who, who had realized in the 1860s, incredibly, that light is actually a wave through the, elect the electric and magnetic fields that fill empty space and which we are completely unaware of. And he, he um, wondered what it would be like to catch up such a ripple OK, now, if you were to catch up a car which was going at 70 miles an hour and you looked across uh, at, that, at that car, it'd be stationary with respect to you. So he thought, well, if you catch up a light wave, a ripple going through these electromagnetic fields, it would be stationary. It looked like a, a wave on a frozen sea. But he realized that the, the, the laws of electromagnetism of Maxwell, there was no such thing. So in that theory. So what he realized is if you caught up a light beam, you would see something that's impossible. And therefore, he said, you cannot catch up a light beam. Now, the, <laughs> we're talking in yep. April 2023, and yep. our Prime Minister just a few days ago said that as a society, we are not as mathematically adept as we ought to be. Now, as a science communicator, do you think we are woefully inept and underinformed about science? We are, unfortunately, and uh, a, a lot of um, um, the things we get to vote on are, are, are scientifically related. You know, we vote for governments that are maybe going to do something about global warming or not do something about global warming, and we don't quite understand the, the science behind it. So, yeah, I think we are a bit woefully ill-informed about science. Yes, and as you go trying to change this, do you feel that the uh, us, the populace, are open to it, or do you do you meet resistance? Can you rephrase that? What do you mean exactly? I mean, mean? Are, are people ready to learn, or um, do they react against it? Do they think, oh no, 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 I don't, I, I can't cope with that. I don't want to know. No, they're overwhelmingly ready to learn they really really are you know and i think uh, i mean a lot of people are switched off of science when they're at school and i can honestly say that when i was at school i was switched off science you know my, my science teachers weren't weren't very uh good or enthusiastic uh and the thing that kept me interested was reading science fiction um and i, I was fortunate 
be to be a child when the first human stood on another world which is you know the apollo landings and that kind of fired my imagination but at no point did i think that was any way in any way connected to my school work and i think there's that there are, there are people leaving school and they're not they're not realizing how amazing it is you know I, I think one of the problems is that science is taught chronologically so you know you learn about newton's laws you learn about gas laws and and you don't actually get up to the exciting stuff and the exciting stuff is, you know, quantum theory and relativity and the Big Bang and all that kind of stuff. I mean, maybe it's it's changed now. Uh, and once you start telling people about this, it blows their mind. You know, it absolutely blows their mind, and and they want to they want to know more. And that's the overwhelming feeling I get when I give talks is that people want to know more. And you said that we vote for politicians who probably did politics and economics at Cambridge or Oxford and they and this resonance to science which is all about truth it it just doesn't get through does it it doesn't it doesn't resonate absolutely not uh, and that is really a, a, a real problem and more than that though there there is almost a sneering attitude towards science and there's there's clearly you know, pe people they're kind of proud of the fact that they that they they aren't mathematical, that they don't know about science. You know that that's incredible. Um, I mean, oddly enough, this this kind of attitude was noticed in the middle of the nineteenth century when it was noticed that countries like Germany were 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 better at, at scientific and engineering uh, education than Britain. So you know, and, and it was it was noted then that we needed to do something about it. And we're now one hundred and fifty years later. And we're still in the same position. As you say, all the politicians or most of the politicians have very similar art and, and, and they don't have the, the scientific knowledge which they ought to have. You know, I mean, uh, uh, I think it was C.P. Snow, two cultures, but he, he thought that an educated person needed to not only know about Shakespeare, but the second law of thermodynamics. Yes, and I bet they don't. <laughs> I mean, let's. I bet they don't. don't. <laughs> yeah. Um, going through your book. Yeah. Um, I've always tried to keep up. I'm in, and I'm in awe of you that you seem to keep up all the time. Do you find yourself sometime sort of panting behind the, the the wave of information that's coming your way? Do you sometimes go, "Oh my goodness me, I don't quite get that. I think I'll have a look at it again." Well, I do. I do. I mean, you know, obviously the, the speed of change is is accelerating all the time. And in particular, for instance, uh, I'm not sure that I'm really appreciating what's happening in artificial intelligence, you know, and how these these massive neural networks are working and how ChatGPT can pretend that it's a professor of philosophy. I'm not sure I'm completely appreciating that. So it is difficult to keep up. But my wife the other day said, "Well, how do you keep up? You know, how, how do you how do you know all these things?" But I mean, I just, I just, I'm interested. I I, I, I see things uh, that are published and I read them, and um, constantly I, I seem to keep myself updated. Wow, but, <laughs> brilliant! Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad you do. Towards the end of your book. I mean, I don't know whether it's meant to make me feel better and uplifted, but some of it I found sort of depressing. Let me give you an example. No, I, I, I grew up <laughs> yeah. knowing 
there was dark matter. And I was intrigued. What is dark matter? And then 30 years ago, I had to get around the problem of dark energy. And nobody seems to know what these are, but they seem hugely important. Are they? Well, they appear to be because, I mean, I mean, this is an astonishing place for science to be. I mean, to, to, to recognise that after 350 years, we've actually been examining a minor contaminant of the universe. 5% <laughs> of, the, of the universe is made of the atoms that you and me and the stars and the galaxies are made of. What and percentage? Just, just repeat that percentage. 5%. And we've only actually seen half of that. Okay, so we've only seen two and a half percent. The other half we we think is probably gas between the galaxies that's maybe too hot or too cold for us to actually see. So, you know, basically, th this is an incredible situation that, that physics finds itself in, or astronomy finds itself in, because it's actually created this massive edifice of, of, of knowledge on the basis of the two and a half percent we've seen. I mean, imagine if Darwin only knew about snails and maybe grass, and he, he <laughs> had to come up with the, the, the you know, the, he didn't know about whales and he didn't know about monkeys and all these other fungi, and he had to come up with a theory of evolution. So we've come up with this theory of cosmology based on the two and a half percent that we've seen. Now, the, the, you know, it, it, this is a controversial thing that I'll say, but, but it, it's possible it's conceivable that we're mistaken you know in the in the late 19th century people were convinced that there was this invisible stuff that filled the whole universe the ether through which light rippled and radio uh, waves you know absolutely absolutely you know. and then Einstein realized that in fact the thing is self-supporting you know that an electric field as it decays generates a magnetic field and this and a magnetic field generates an electric field and this goes on over and over and over again so that the actual electromagnetic wave or a light is self-perpetuating it doesn't need a medium through which to go um and and these things like dark matter and dark energy do look like ethers on the other hand there's a lot of interlocking evidence to to show that they exist so for instance dark matter uh, the stars in our galaxy where we're in this sort of uh, spiral of stars are are, um, are orbiting far too fast you know by, by rights they should be flung off into intergalactic space they're like kids on a speeded up roundabout you know yeah so we we say okay um there's got to be this extra stuff outweighs the visible stuff by about six times and it's extra gravity is gripping onto the stars and stopping them fly away okay now if that was the one piece of evidence then um maybe we, we would be worried however when we look at the 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 the, the evolution of the universe we we can tell because we can see the big bang radiation the afterglow of the big bang that the universe the matter in the universe was distributed very uniformly in the big bang there were slight little bumps you know where it was slightly denser than average uh, and and we can run forward the laws of physics and we can say well as time progressed these lumps would have enhanced, they would have enhanced because they would have dragged in more material with their extra gravity. And then we can ask how long would it take to get from that uniform state in the Big Bang to a universe with galaxies? And the answer is it would take about 10 times longer than the age of the universe, the current age of the universe. Okay, so it, it couldn't happen. So our observation that we're living here, that we're having this conversation, that we're in a galaxy contradicts the Big Bang idea. Unless there's a lot of invisible stuff 
whose extra gravity speeded up that process of accumulation of material. You know, basically, it's the rich getting richer. That's what's happened. <laughs> um, uh, you know, more, you know, as galaxies get bigger, they dragging more. The rich get ever richer, uh, and 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 so we and, and we have to have six times as much dark matter. So from two completely different areas, we're being told there there is dark matter. As for, as for dark energy. I mean, we didn't even suspect that until 1998. So this is the major mass yes. component of the universe. Two thirds of the mass of the universe is this invisible stuff. By the way, it's in the room where you are now, David. It's in my room. It's invisible. It fills all, all of space. It's got repulsive gravity. And it's speeding up the expansion of the universe. I mean, there is a, there is a possibility that we've been hoodwinked here. Uh, so we see, when we look out across the universe, we see great clusters of galaxies things like the great wall you know we, we see things billions of light years along these great structures we also see voids uh and it could be that we're in a in a void okay now if we're in a void there's less gravity there's less galaxies around us whose gravity would be breaking the expansion so we could be hoodwinked if we're in an unusual void we could be hoodwinked into thinking that the universe's expansion is speeding up but I don't know. I mean, there is a, a European Space Agency uh, probe called Euclid, which is just about to be launched, uh, maybe next year or, or later this year, and that's going to probe the dark energy. But, but uh, just to just to finish, to give you some idea, um, the, our best prediction of the energy density of empty space—that is, the dark energy—is we get from quantum theory. And that prediction is one followed by 120 zeros bigger than what we observe. That is the biggest discrepancy between a prediction and an observation in a history of science. So it's possible there's something wrong. It's possible there's something wrong somewhere. Yeah, yeah I mean, it makes my brain hurt. <laughs> um, there's a lot about your brain, about brains in your book. Now, yeah. the other thing that worries me about okay. this is it's complete sort of illogicality. I do not understand how I've got in my room here um, an oxygen atom, yep. and that could be linked um, to a similar thing squillions of light years away. And if something happens to this one, it it's, it's twin. That's the same thing. Now, have I got it wrong? Because this seems to me in a universe where everything, uh, the fastest you can go is 186,000 miles per second. How can it happen that these things are twinned regardless yeah. of distance? Well, basically, you and Einstein are, were the, are of the same mind because that's exactly, <laughs> that's, exactly, that's exactly what he thought in the 1930s. He thought wait a minute, quantum theory predicts this thing. You know, it predicts that uh, particles that are born together, if you separate them, they have some kind of ghostly connection and they kind of know about each other. And this effect uh, would mean that if you were to separate them, you know, as you, as you say, maybe separate different sides of the universe, whatever, um, if you did something to one of them, the other one would respond instantly, even though no signal could go between them because the speed of light is the cosmic speed limit. And so Einstein was convinced that this must mean that quantum theory 
was not complete. You know, it wasn't the, our final uh, picture of the universe. Sadly, in 1980, Alan Aspect in Paris um, was able to do this experiment, uh, separate two photons, particles of light, do something to one of them on one side of his lab and see the other one, the partner, respond so quickly that, that a signal would have had to go, go gone between them at about four times the speed of light. So we now know that this what we call non-locality non or spooky action at a distance, as Einstein called it, is a reality. And, and this is one of the, I mean, this is why we, we started off this conversation talking about uh, people, are, are people really interested in science? And when you tell the tell them people these amazing things, they are interested in science because it's absolutely mind blowing. It, you know, it, it's we live in a universe that is stranger than science fiction. You know, stranger than anything we could possibly have invented. So, in in a sense, what we're talking about here are two particles, which are which. Uh, in order to demonstrate this 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 effect you're talking about, you've got to isolate two particles, maybe two electrons, from the rest of the universe, because that's the only way you see it. But actually, this, this property you've just pointed out is common to everything, because everything was in the same state in the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. So in a way, everything, every atom, every particle in the universe is connected by this ghostly web of connections that you've pointed out. But we can only see it in a lab if we can take away just two of these and isolate them and, and see it. So we don't really know what the implications of that are, but uh, but it's pretty incredible. <laughs> and, and, it, and of course, the reason the reason it is compatible with Einstein and it did not violate Einstein is that practically you can't send any useful information. Okay, so. Right. So you can't mod whatever it links it. You no, can't modulate you can't, it. You can't, and the reason for that is the basic randomness of the process. So, for instance, if we say say we had two electrons, they can spin. They have a spin. Imagine spinning clockwise and anti-clockwise. Okay, we can actually. It turns out that, that that quantum things can do two things at once. So we could actually have an electron that was spinning first one spinning clockwise, the second one anti-clockwise. Okay, that's one possibility. The other possibility is the first one going anti-clockwise and the second one clockwise, so the opposite. We can actually create a state in which both of those exist at once, okay? Now, it turns out that that, that, that anti-clockwise and clockwise nature means that they have no what we call angular momentum. Okay, and there's a law in physics that says that angular momentum cannot change. It's called the conservation of angular momentum. Okay, so if we ever see one spinning clockwise and one spinning anticlockwise, well, the other one has to be anticlockwise. So basically, if, if they're in this kind of schizophrenic state where we don't actually know which way the electrons are spinning, and we, we take one in a box to Australia, and we open the box, and we find that it's spinning clockwise, we know that the one left in London must be anti-clockwise okay but the problem is that when you open that box in australia whether it's clockwise or anti-clockwise is entirely random it's like tossing a coin there's a 50 percent chance so in other words we can only send randomness and, and so really einstein's theory is actually preserved because 
no useful signal can be sent at greater than the speed of light. We can send signals which are useless at any speed we like. But, so that's the, that's the way it doesn't violate uh, Einstein's theory. Now, I'm going to jump from that. You said that this book, The One Thing You Need to Know, started from a lecture you gave to some lawyers in Cheltenham about quantum computers. Now, I want to know about quantum computers because I think it's exciting. But surely a quantum computer is only different from the computers we all know because some of the bits can do two things at once. Is that right? So some of the things that a quantum com computer do, quantum computer can do, is that bits that are involved in the process can do two things. In my computer, which frustrates me sometimes, it's a struggle to get it to do one thing. But in a quantum computer, they can do many things. That's right. So if we have one bit and a binary bit is basically the, a flow of a current or no, no flow of a current through a transistor, we use those two states to represent maybe a one and a zero. Um, in your computer, it, uh, it can only represent a one or a zero, but with a quantum bit or a qubit, it can represent both a one and a zero. So, so if you if you do a calculation with it, you're, you can do two calculations at once because you're using two separate numbers. Remember, if you've got two, if you've got two qubits, then there's four possibilities: one zero, one one, zero one, and zero zero. Okay, if you've got three qubits, you, there's eight possibilities. So there's there's eight possible calculations you can do simultaneously. So the number of calculations goes up exponentially fast. And I can give you an idea of how fast it goes up. Yes. John. If you had a quantum com computer with more than 270 qubits, right? Remember that your computer has gigabits. Yes. 270 bits is, is nothing. But that computer could do more calculations simultaneously than there are particles in the universe. So when you add when you add a bit to, to your calculation, to your, your storage of numbers or whatever in a normal computer, you marginally increase what you can do with your computer. But every time you add a qubit, you double what you can do with your computer. And this is why an exponential, this is what we call an exponential increase, exponentials beat into submission absolutely everything else so uh, i mean imagine that 270 bits and you can do more calculations than there are particles in the universe and of course this this and, and I mean, this, this, this 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 gives this rise to this philosophical problem and then you have to ask yourself you know where is the quantum computer doing the calculations i mean your computer can only do the calculations for which it has the physical resources you know it has to have the memory yeah. So if a, if a quantum computer is doing more calculations than there are particles in the universe, you have to say, well, where is it doing the calculations? And then this is the this is where um, this is where I come back to the one thing that you need to know about quantum computers, and that is that a quantum computer, in effect, splits into multiple copies of itself. The first human invention that exploits parallel realities. Now, just let's just. Hang on to the desk here. Have a have a sip of coffee. <laughs> you know, because this I find this very destabilizing. Um, uh, do these things exist? Do they happen? Does it happen? Yeah, quantum computers do exist. 
Um, they aren't very sophisticated. I think the biggest one were, is is um, run by Google. I think they doubled, or, or actually it might be IBM. IBM or Google, they keep, they keep leapfrogging each other. Uh, and it probably, I can't remember, but it's probably no more than about um, 100 bits, something like that, which is, which is minuscule. One thing you, know, you need to know about quantum computers is that they're unbelievably error-prone. Okay, so this, this ability of one of their components to be doing two things at once is very fragile. Okay, and, and if, if this quantum, quantum things are, by the way, they're not big things or small things, quantum things, they're isolated things. They, 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 we, we see them with atoms in the behavior of atoms because they're easy to isolate. We don't see them with you, David, because you are difficult to isolate from your surroundings. You know, <laughs> yes, there, there, there are air molecules bouncing off your head. There's light, you know. But if we could isolate you, David, completely from your surroundings, you would behave like a quantum object. You could walk through two doors at once, you know. Um, and so in, in order to build a quantum computer, you need to isolate these qubits from their surroundings, which in, 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 in effect means put them in a perfect vacuum so that there are no molecules bouncing off them, cool them to, to a really low temperature so there are no photons that are bouncing off them. But th this can never be done perfectly. So the quantum qubits are constantly reverting to normal bits. And the only way you can, you can do a calculation is to constantly correct for the errors that this introduces. So when, when you hear that maybe Google is using an 80-bit quantum computer, most of those bits are used for error correction and hardly any of those bits are actually used for calculation. Most people developing these do think that the error correction will be able to keep ahead of the error accumulation. But this is a fundamental problem. I can't remember how your computer uh, um, accumulates errors, but it's probably it accumulates one error for every like billion, billion operations, something ridiculous like that. Uh, so your computer doesn't really, but these these things, the, the quantum computers, they accumulate errors for every maybe 100 uh, calculations. So they're massively error prone. So at the moment, that that is, that is the big problem. Well, the big problem is building them because they have to be isolated. And then I should say, there is also the problem of finding a problem they can actually solve. <laughs> I, I, honestly what started this conversation is the one thing you need to know there's neutrinos big bang higgs field oh i want to talk to you about the higgs field on another occasion quantum computers human evolution now there's another one general relativity the standard model there is enough to keep you going what level of understanding or education do you hope your reader will have Marcus? Well, I hope it's accessible to everybody. You know, I write for my wife, who's an NHS nurse. She has no uh, science background. And if she if she starts, uh, she turns up the sound on EastEnders, you know, <laughs> I, I realise that I'm boring her and I need to, I need to say it more clearly. <laughs> what keeps you awake at night, Marcus? What keeps me awake? Actually, I'm a really good sleeper. Um, <laughs> The occasional police siren going past. <laughs> what keeps me awake? I'm not really. I nothing in science really keeps me awake. Um, although I'm, I'm, I, I have a kind of niggling worry about artificial intelligence and whether we're going to be completely wiped out and you know superseded. That's that's a slight worry. Mm, right. Okay. Um, and in the 
the rest of your lifetime do you expect the dark matter dark energy i mean i love the idea in dark energy things when they fall could fall upwards now i mean <laughs> do you expect well, because when you're at school, you learn that gravity sucks. Gravity attracts. But actually, since 1998, we've known that two-thirds of the stuff in the universe has repulsive gravity. So there may be physics teaching in schools is, is, is behind the times. Oh, the world needs you, Marcus. The one thing you need to know, the simple way to understand the most important ideas in science, is the latest triumph from Marcus Schaun. <laughs> Great to see you again, Marcus. <laughs> Thanks very much, David. Thank mm -hmm. you.